Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Damania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Today, we have a unique case focused on retropharyngeal abscess in the PICU. We are going to take a deep dive into the relationship between this condition and upper airway obstruction. But first, here's the case presented by Rahul. A nine-month-old male, previously in good health, was admitted to the PICU with acute symptoms. He initially presented to the emergency department with left neck swelling, fever, noisy breathing, and decreased oral intake. However, his condition had deteriorated within a day. His mother reported a recent upper respiratory infection treated with albuterol. But notably, the child had no prior antibiotic exposure or similar episodes, and suddenly we see the child having limited neck mobility, his head favoring the left side, and progressive symptom escalation with fevers. His initial neck x-ray in the emergency room indicated abnormal soft tissue density in the retropharyngeal region, suggesting abscess formation. A subsequent CT scan with IV contrast confirmed this diagnosis, revealing a defined mass in the retropharyngeal space with inflammation and potential fluid collection characteristic of a retropharyngeal abscess. Based on these findings and the clinical picture, the ENT team was consulted. The patient was initiated on high-flow nasal cannula and intravenous antibiotics post-blood culture were begun. His admission to the PICU was necessitated for comprehensive care and observation with treatment guided by the imaging and clinical findings. To summarize key elements from this case, this patient has rapid symptom onset, neck swelling and drooling, and limited range of motion of his neck. Thanks so much, Pradeep, for summarizing the case. And I think to all trainees who are rotating through the PICU, I wanted to incorporate a sample assessment that you can say on rounds for this patient. This is a previously healthy nine-month-old male with recent upper respiratory infection presenting with rapid onset left neck swelling, fever, and respiratory distress with imaging indicative of a potential retropharyngeal abscess necessitating urgent PICU management for airway protection and intravenous antibiotic therapy. With this working diagnosis, let's now shift gears and understand the pathophysiology of the retropharyngeal abscess. Rahul, in the case we noted that this child had a prodrome of URI symptoms, can you elaborate a bit on how this may have developed into a full-blown RPA? Absolutely, Pradeep. So just for clarity purposes, RPA is now going to refer to retropharyngeal abscess. And I think understanding the pathophysiology of RPA is crucial. So let's start with the anatomy. And we have embedded a picture of this on our show notes on PICU.com call. So click on the episode and we will have the image embedded on the website. 
So the retropharyngeal space nestled between the pharynx and cervical vertebrae is flanked laterally by the carotid sheath. And in the carotid sheath, you're going to have the carotid artery. Now, it spans actually from the base of the skull all the way down to the mediastinum. And I think that that is such an important anatomical landmark that the retropharyngeal space is going to include the mediastinum and perihilar region. Now, within this space lie the retropharyngeal and lateral parapharyngeal lymph nodes. And these are pivotal in draining the mucosal surfaces of the upper airway and upper digestive tracts. Now, imagine these lymph nodes as a series of interconnected stations, each capable of transmitting infections throughout this network. This rapid communication is what makes RPAs particularly hazardous. The infection can stem from a seemingly innocuous source, maybe a dental infection, penetrating trauma to the oropharynx, or any localized infection in the oropharynx. And frankly, in our case, it was a simple otitis media or upper respiratory tract infection. So this is a little bit of how the anatomy can rapidly progress through this retropharyngeal lymphatic system. So Pradeep, with this pathophysiology in mind, can you tell us why RPAs are so detrimental in pediatric patients? I think, Rahul, the danger of RPA lies in its potential for causing every compromise of posterior mediastinitis. Now, imagine an inflamed, swollen mass pressing against and narrowing the airway or an infection tracking down into the chest. The infected lymph nodes can evolve from mere cellulitis to phlegmon and eventually to an abscess. Remember, on imaging, a phlegmon presents as an ill-defined inflammatory soft tissue mass. It typically shows diffuse swelling and increased density in the affected area without a well-circumscribed abscess cavity. Now, from a microbiological standpoint, the usual suspects in RPA include group A strap, anaerobes from the oropharynx, uh, staph aureus, H. influenza, klebsiella, and even mycobacterium avium intracellular organisms. This is great, Pradeep, but I'm so glad that we were able to incorporate the microbiology. For those who are preparing for PICU boards, it's essential to grasp the anatomical intricacies and the microbiological landscape of RPA. Recognizing its rapid progression and the critical need for prompt diagnosis and management, as well as consultation from ear, nose, and throat. So what we're going to do now is pivot and go into a multiple choice question to really build on this concept. So here's the multiple choice question. In a pediatric patient with a suspected retropharyngeal abscess, which of the following is the most specific physical exam finding? A, strider. B, bilateral neck swelling. C, limited neck mobility. Or D, hoarseness. Rahul, the correct answer is C, limited neck mobility. Now, limited neck mobility in RPA occurs due to pain and inflammation in the retropharyngeal space, leading to muscle spasm and protective posturing. This specific finding helps differentiate RPA from other neck infection. We want to reiterate that early recognition and management of RPA are crucial in the PICU setting to prevent complications such as airway obstruction and spread of infection. No, that's great, Pradeep. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on the typical clinical manifestations you observed in this patient who we suspected had a RPA. 
RPA is predominantly seen in children who are about three to four years of age. As retropharyngeal lymph nodes typically involute after the age of five, this condition is rarely seen in older children and adults. And I think that is important, that this is a condition that is a, a, a thing seen in younger kids as opposed to teenagers and older children. In acute care setting, children with a recent history of URI may present with non-specific symptoms such as fever, irritability, decreased oral intake, and drooling. These initial presentations can obscure the underlying severity of RPA. Specifically in the PICU, children may exhibit more pronounced symptoms indicative of RPA. This include throat or neck pain, neck stiffness, torticollis, or a refusal to move the neck due to pain and inflammation. A muffled voice, strider, respiratory distress are critical signs that necessitate immediate attention as they may indicate impending airway compromise. In some cases, there may be observable deviation of the tonsil, especially in lateral pharyngeal abscesses. Now, palpable lymph nodes in the neck and a visible bulge in the pharyngeal area are clinical signs that aid in bedside recognition. These findings, combined with the child's age and recent URI history, should heighten the suspicion for RPA. Now, the mental model which you would like to keep in mind for RPA is that it can cause upper airway obstruction. Thank you so much, Pradeep, for diving so deep into RPA. I think in the differential for retropharyngeal abscess, we must consider other etiologies. So those are going to be conditions such as acute epiglottitis, which is characterized by fever and drooling. Other things such as foreign body aspiration, meningitis, especially with the limited neck mobility, vertebral osteomyelitis that may have disseminated, hematoma and lymphoma could also be considered in the differential, especially lymphoma and uh, anterior mediastinal mass or a Hodgkin's lymphoma that is going to be in that similar space. So hopefully we have kind of been able to tease out the overlapping clinical presentations in this part of the episode. So Rahul, in this case, given a strong suspicion for RPA, could you discuss the recommended approach for diagnostic workup in uh, such scenarios? Absolutely, Pradeep. So for the diagnosis of RPA in the PICU, a combination of a thorough history and physical along with targeted imaging and lab investigations is crucial. CT scan of the neck with contrast is the diagnostic gold standard, offering detailed abscess localization and features predictive of abscess formation. Like we talked about before, a phlegmon could be an early harbinger to an abscess. Now, the key laboratory tests surround looking for infection and tracking inflammation. So this is where you're going to get a blood culture, inflammatory markers like CRP and procalcitonin, and you're going to be really closely collaborating with two subspecialties, otorhinolaryngology or ENT, as well as your infectious disease colleagues. Absolutely, Rahul. In the evaluation of RPA, a study published in the International Journal of Pediatric Otolaryngology highlighted critical indicators for a more complicated clinical course essential for bedside management in the PICU. They found that signs of airway obstruction, such as strider, was significantly more common in patients requiring PICU admission, with 100% of these patients presenting such signs compared to only 6% in the uncomplicated cases. Furthermore, younger age was identified as a risk factor, with mean age of patients with airway obstructions being significantly lower 
at 1.4 years compared to 3.6 years in the uncomplicated cases. The study also emphasized the need for preparedness in managing a difficult airway, as evidenced by patients requiring procedures like microlaryngoscopy and prolonged intubation. Additionally, the presence of multiple abscess sites was associated with increased risk of requiring multiple interventions. These findings underscore the importance of a thorough assessment and vigilance in management of the RPA, particularly in young children and those with signs of airway obstruction or multiple abscesses. Absolutely, Pradeep. And just to summarize, in managing pediatric RPA patients in the PICU, I think us as intensivists and the team must exercise caution with sedation, especially in those who have respiratory distress, strider, or neck swelling. Prioritizing obtaining CT scans with minimal or no sedation, utilizing child life services or parental presence due to the rapid risk of deterioration, post-sedation, and potential airway management challenges should be prioritized. And I think also you have taught me very well that you must ensure not only airway, but adequate access. And so I do want to make an underlying point to ensure robust IV access and considering a PICC line placement for prolonged antibiotic therapy when managing pediatric RPA. So Rahul, can you outline the available treatment options for managing RPA in the PICU? Absolutely, Pradeep. So as a big picture in managing RPA in the PICU, we must prioritize antibiotic therapy, assess the need for surgical drainage with ENT, while closely working with infectious disease and pharmacy to titrate your antibiotics. With us in the pediatric ICU and in hospital medicine, we will also collaborate to figure out what is a good pain regimen for these children as the inflammation can cause an increased discomfort in this patient population. Now, a few specifics in management. Let's first talk about antibiotic therapy. It is noted in the literature that up to 50% of RPA cases can be effectively treated with antibiotics alone, typically a combination of a third-generation cephalosporin, like for example, ceftriaxone, or you could use unison or clindamycin. I think it's also important for us to consider adding vancomycin, especially if you have a high rate of MRSA in cultures in the area. If there's no clinical improvement or persistent respiratory distress, this is where surgical drainage might be necessary. Now, what about duration of antibiotic therapy? In the literature, the optimal duration of antibiotic therapy is not really well established. The duration of antibiotic therapy for RPA, I think, should be individualized based on the clinical response and the resolution of symptoms. In practice and looking at some of the studies, a range of 10 to 14 days of antibiotic therapy usually is going to be warranted in these cases. Now, we mentioned that this is such an inflammatory condition, and this brings up the use of steroids. Now, when I look through the literature, the use of steroids, such as dexamethasone, really remains controversial. Studies show that they may be beneficial in reducing airway swelling. However, they're not necessarily treating the underlying cause. In a retrospective study published in 2022 in a European otorhinolaryngology journal, they found that in their cohort of 30 children, there was reduced symptom duration and hospital stays in children who were treated with steroids and antibiotics. The mean length of hospital stay in these children was about seven and a half days. 
Rahul, that was very nice. So emphasizing for the PQ setting, airway management and secure access are crucial. Intensivists must closely monitor the child's airway and collaborate with anesthesia and ENT for potential early intubation in cases of hypoxia, escalating respiratory distress, or significant neck swelling. And I also want to emphasize that airway management, even if the kid looks good, should be done early in the day rather than keep it for 2 a.m. at night when the resources may be less. Absolutely, Pradeep. I'm so glad that you have really imbibed into this thought process the importance of situational awareness. Now, as we close, Pradeep, could you discuss some of the potential complications associated with retropharyngeal abscess? Yes. So to wrap up this episode, I think we continued to emphasize the critical nature of RPA in children, emphasizing the importance of early intervention with broad-spectrum antibiotics to mitigate rapid progression, and prevent severe complications. Now, such complications include upper airway obstruction, aspiration pneumonia due to rupture, and in rare cases, internal jugular thrombosis or carotid artery sheet rupture. For related discussion, refer to our Lemire disease episode, episode number 58, which focuses on an infection of the lateral pharyngeal space, more common in older children and teenagers. Thanks, Pradeep, for highlighting this. And for our listeners, I think it's important for us to emphasize the complications of RPA. And this integrates back to what we were talking about of the anatomical considerations. With RPA, you could get mediastinitis, and this occurs when the infection spreads contiguously from the retropharyngeal space into the mediastinum, potentially leading to severe inflammation and infection of the mediastinal tissues. This progression can present with chest pain, fever, tachycardia, respiratory distress, and it really poses a significant risk for severe sepsis and airway obstruction. And so on imaging, these patients can actually have air that is tracking in the perihilar region. All right, Pradeep, so we have really gone through the pathophysiology, diagnosis, and management of RPA. Do you mind shedding light on how our patient's clinical case unfolded? Absolutely. So the patient's respiratory viral panel detected RSV, adenovirus, and rhinoenterovirus. In the PQ, due to worsening respiratory distress and increased airway swelling as assessed by ENT, the patient required intubation. Despite antibiotics and steroids, there was no clinical improvement necessitating incision and drainage by our ENT colleagues. They used an intraoral and right transcervical approach. Cultures grew MRSA, leading to the continuation of vancomycin and unicin in the PICU. The patient was later extubated following the detection of an air leak prior to extubation and discharged to the floor on oral clindamycin for a two-week course. Rahul, so what are some of the clinical takeaways from our RPA episode today? Thanks so much, Pradeep. So this was a very great succinct episode, and I have four key takeaways. Number one, maintain a low threshold for suspecting RPA in children presenting with fever, neck swelling, drooling, and limited neck mobility. Second, initiate broad-spectrum antibiotics early in the course of suspected RPA. You may just want to start these children off with VANC and zamanaerobic coverage. You want to prioritize airway assessment, intervene early, in cases of worsening upper airway obstruction, 
And in particular, what I would recommend is to have a proactive discussion early on in the day when these children are admitted with ENT and anesthesia. Like we mentioned, we don't want this to be a 2 a.m. emergency. Finally, consider surgical drainage for non-responders to antibiotics, escalating respiratory distress, or even in immunocompromised patients. This overall condition must be managed closely with team members from infectious disease, ENT, anesthesia, as well as the PICU. This concludes our episode on retropharyngeal abscess. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.